0: All right, so we're going to be doing something a little different today. Um, We're going to be in the Psalms. So if you have your Luke book, you're not going to need it. Uh, (laughs) So here's what happened. Yeah, I still, I think I've told you guys this, but my favorite thing in the whole world was Paul walking in with his Luke book after a year and a half, uh, that first summer Sunday when you didn't know we were doing something different. Anyway, um, you guys know Tommaso's, right? I talk about this constantly. If you've still not been to Tommaso's, we got to go. Okay, so uh, when the pandemic hit, and then Tommaso's is my favorite restaurant just up the street here, and they first opened back up, we, me and Melissa went, and we ordered the fried calamari, which will ruin you for other fried calamari. Everywhere else you go, you're gonna spit it out. This is trash, ugh, like Gordon Ramsay after you have Tommaso's fried calamari. So we went, we ordered the fried calamari like we always do, and my buddy George, who owns a restaurant, he said, oh, we don't have fried calamari right now. I was furious. How, do you, how dare you do this to me, George, is what I told him, Giorgio. And uh, he explained to me, he said, look, the, um, the thing is with the pandemic, we can't get the calamari fresh anymore. So we'd have to serve frozen calamari. And he's like, we're not doing that. We'd rather not have it on the menu than serve garbage, right? And I was like, okay, I get that. Anyway, I was there last week and they have fried calamari back, which is awesome. But uh, finally, after a year. But here's the point. Uh, it's better to wait than to serve garbage. That's Tommaso's policy, right? With that said, that's why I decided to bump the Luke sermon that I was working on. Um, I was working on it, and um, at the last minute, I was working on it this week. In the middle of the week, I was at a coffee shop up by my mom's, and I got an idea, and then I realized, boy, this idea is going to take more time than I have to change this whole sermon And I really want to do it this other way. (laughs) So I decided to scrap the fried calamari for a little bit and jump into the Psalms, which is also what we did last year, the week after Thanksgiving. If you remember, I was at my brother's house sitting by the fire. um, And it's like really toasty by the end of it. You know, I sat too close to the fire. Um, So anyway, this week we're going to be in the Psalms. Um, That's the first reason I bumped it, because I got this idea and I didn't want to serve the frozen calamari. The second idea, uh, the second reason is because the next Luke sermon is actually the... kind of a new section, and it's the first part of a section of four or five of them. And I realized, boy, I don't want to do one, you know, right now, then all of December, oops, all of December off, that'll be fun in the podcast, all of December off, and then last time we were here, do you remember, you know, so we're going to take the whole section together. So anyway, we're going to be in Luke today, um, and we're going to talk about Thanksgiving, and we're going to do that by first reading this uh, definition of anthropo- <laughs> uh, uh, anthropocentrism. Anthropocentrism. There we go. Um, the viewpoint uh, here. This is what it says here in the pocket dictionary of new tests of new religious movements. The viewpoint expressed in whoever is that saying um, that I'm not going to pretend like I know how to say his name either. Uh, that man is the measure of all things. It's today closely associated with humanism. Recently, it's been used by people in the environmental movement as a critique of the views that give a greater value to humankind over the rest of nature. So basically, here's the idea with this, is that man, mankind, is the center of, the wor- is the center of everything and is more important than everything else around us, right? So people are the center. And if you go into the Encyclopedia Britannica, who still has that? Anybody have the set of encyclopedias? Do you guys remember that from junior high writing a report? Oh man, I got to find a friend with the Encyclopedia on Argentina or whatever you got. <laughs> so you can copy and paste. Anyway, so in the Encyclopedia Britannica, um, the author says this, which uh, whoever wrote this article, that uh, many ethicists find the root of anthropocentrism in the creation story. Uh, told in the book of Genesis and in the Judeo-Christian Bible, in which humans are created in the image of God and are instructed to subdue the earth and to have dominion over all other living creatures. This passage has been interpreted as an indication of humanity's superiority to nature and as condoning an instrumental view of nature uh, where the natural world has value only as it benefits humankind. This line of thought is not limited to Jewish and Christian theology and can be found in Aristotle's politics and Immanuel Kant's moral philosophy. So basically what the Encyclopedia Britannica says, this idea that people are the most important and the center comes from the Bible. But here's the problem with that is when you read the beginning of Genesis, God creates a world and he gives humanity dominion over the world. But the actual story is a little bit different, right? So they're taking part of the story, and they're saying this is what, what's going on. But the actual story is that man was created not to be the center. Mankind, we were created to have God at the center, not us at the center. And the first sin and the first, the rebellion against God, that's what we did. So they're right in that, in that um, putting humankind at the center is what happened, But the biblical story is that's wrong, right? And trying to make everything about humanity is actually pushing God out of his place. And so there there is truth in that all humankind, we were made in the image of God. And so we have this special, unique uh, relationship with God and with creation, right? We're above creation, but we're lower than God. And so um, the biblical story, we have to keep that biblical story in the front of our minds, uh, where the first rebellion was telling God, I want to be the most important. I want to be the center. I don't want you to be the center. Even though we were created to have God at the center. Today we're going to be talking about thanksgiving. And we're going to read a psalm and, uh, about thanksgiving. But first I want to say thanksgiving requires, real thanksgiving to God, requires first that we stop and check our man-centered worldview. We can't bring the the worldview that I'm the most important into thanksgiving because when you have God at the center of the, the story, when you have God at the center of your life, you start to see how much you owe him. You start to see, you start to really understand grace and seeing God at the middle from that perspective, what it does is it grows the thanksgiving in your heart. Uh, in a natural sort of a way. And so we need to ask, in the moments, in the times when I'm not thankful, when I'm not a thankful person, think about this. How am I placing me at the middle of something and moving God away from the center? Because usually when we're not thankful people, that's what we're doing, right? Let's take the big example, right, is um, uh, the idea of salvation. And if you remember the context of what we were just reading before in the book of Luke, like, if you remember what we've been going through, Jesus has been railing on the scribes and the Pharisees about their legalism and their moralism, their idea that I can do something and earn my salvation. Salvation is not by God's free gift. Salvation is not by grace alone because of, you know, the death and resurrection. They're like, they're not about that. They're about earning their salvation, which is a very people-centered view, and so Jesus is railing on them for that. You guys have put yourselves in the middle, and you're not the middle. You're not the center. God is. Salvation is by grace alone. Today, we're going to read Psalm 116. We're going to go through the whole thing. We're going to kind of bounce around just a little bit. But Psalm 116 is a Thanksgiving psalm, but it's a very unusual Thanksgiving psalm. Okay, it's not your normal. Last year, we read, um, you know, uh, give thanks to the Lord, wait, what is it? His steadfast love, you know the psalm, his steadfast love endures forever, where it says it like a hundred times, you know? That, that's a very obvious Thanksgiving psalm. And I pulled it up to start writing the sermon, and then I was like, oh yeah, we did that one last year. All right, let's do a different one. <laughs> so I, I started looking through all the Thanksgiving psalms, and this one really caught my eye because it's, it's, it's a very unusual Thanksgiving psalm. It's broken up into two main parts. First is, I mean, this is not exact, but it's close. What God does for the psalmist and then, what's the response of the psalmist? What he does for God? So we're going to start in verse one. Um, he says, "This I love the Lord because He's heard my voice." So, oh, the first thing here, He hears the prayers, right, of the psalmist. I love the Lord because He heard my voice and my pleas for mercy, because He inclined His ear to me. Therefore, I will call on Him as long as I live. So he starts out with this: "I love the Lord." Right? I've said this before, but we can never think of the gospel story as just simply your get-out-of-jail-free card, your fire insurance, your way to avoid punishment. That's not what the Bible's about. Um, The Bible is about Christ, right? Christianity is about Christ. Again, he's the center. He's the purpose. He's the point of all of this. And the gospel story leads us to be connected and united to Christ. That's like the pinnacle of the whole thing, is being back in a relationship with Christ. Thomas Goodwin, who was like an English Puritan, said this, Where did I put my water? Anybody see it? I brought my water bottle, everything. I filled it up. Now I lost it. All right, anyway, Thomas... (laughs) Nope, I don't know. Maybe it's in my backpack. I don't know. Anyway, Thomas Goodwin, the English Puritan, said this, being in Christ and united to him is the fundamental constitution of the Christian, right? It's the fundamental thing that we do is being united to Christ, And that relationship with Christ is, it's about love, right? That's the whole point, is to love. Oh, look at that. Thanks. Thanks, wife. Um, Is is a relationship of love, right? And so you can see how the, the psalmist says, he starts like this. I love the Lord. It's such a simple place to start when we're talking about Thanksgiving. I love the Lord. Why does he love the Lord? Because he hears me. I love this. As opposed, if you read the Old Testament, as it's opposed, God hearing you is as opposed to the idols. The, the Old Testament constantly talks about how the idols can't hear you. Um, in Psalm 115, it says this, um, They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they do not smell. Talking about the idols, the other guy's idols. He's like, they have these little statues. They're real cute, right? And they have little ears on the statues. But do the statues actually hear you? No, that's what he says. One of my other favorite parts of the Bible is the story of Elijah um, mocking the prophets at Baal, of Baal. You know the story? So Elijah is like one of the last prophets of the Lord, and there's all these prophets of Baal. or It's actually Baal, but it's weird to say. Um, <laughs> so I say Baal like everybody else does, right? My American accent. Um, the prophets of Baal and uh, are arguing with Elijah. He's like, all right, let's have a contest. We're going to put two cows on some altars, and we're going to pray to our gods and see which ones light the cow on fire. Okay, you guys go first. <laughs> and so they, they do. They, put the, they kill the cow or whatever. They put it up on the altar. They build this thing, and they start doing all these ritual dances and stuff, and Elijah's standing there, and oh my gosh, this is so funny. He's like... <laughs> Uh, He starts making fun of him. Well, why can't he hear you? Like, nothing's happening. He's looking up in the sky. He's being super sarcastic. At one point, he goes, oh, maybe uh, he's on the can, right? Maybe he's on the toilet. Just give him a minute. Maybe he just needs to finish on the toilet. He'll come. Then he'll show up, and he'll do it. And then they start doing this thing where they're, like, cutting themselves and doing all this stuff, and Elijah's standing there making fun of him. Then Elijah goes over to his altar, and he says, just for effect, let's cover the whole thing with water. So they douse it all with water so there's no sparks that could light it on accident. And he prays and this fire comes down poof, and engulfs the whole thing, right? And he wins the contest. And then um, the part that's not so funny is then everybody kills all the prophets of Baal. But anyway, <laughs> the funny part is he's making fun of them. You got Your God, he's not even listening to you probably because he's on the can, right? He has some bad Thai food and it's not going well and now he can't light the thing on fire. It's the opposite with our God, right? This is what the Bible consistently tells us. The ultimate fulfillment of this, right, is what I talk about probably every other week. The idea of the curtain in the temple, you know, when Jesus died, the curtain that separated people from God in the part of the temple where the presence of God lived, there was a big curtain that kept everybody away from that presence. That curtain was ripped during the crucifixion when everybody showed up. The idea was that God's presence now lives with his people. Um, I love this verse, too, talking about how God hears us. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not... Know what to pray. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And He who searches hearts knows what is in the mind of the Spirit because. Motorcycle, nice. uh, Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So here's the other cool part God hears you. Not only does God hear you, but God the Holy Spirit translates your idiot prayers to the Father. For you, you pray for dumb stuff, and the Spirit takes that dumb stuff, translates it up, and then sends it up to God the Father, and says, "Here's what he would have prayed, <laughs> right? Or here's what she would have prayed if she wasn't being so stupid right now, right?" I-, I love that idea, and this all adds up to a pretty cool picture, right? The Father hears us when we pray. The Spirit proofreads our prayers, like Kayla proofreads everything that I put on a website and fixes it before it goes up, and then the Son Himself. Uh, in Hebrews, talks about he's interceding for us too. The Son is praying for you at the same time the Spirit is translating your prayer. All of this leads to God hearing your prayers. That's something to be thankful for. But it's not all just, this isn't a rosy Thanksgiving psalm. This is a weird, depressing Thanksgiving psalm. So let's keep going. Look at this. Verse, uh, the next one, verse three. Um, so, uh, What God, this section is what God does for the psalmist. So first he hears his prayer. Second, he saves him from death. The snares of death encompassed me. The pangs of Sheol laid hold of me, or on me. I suffered uh, distress and anguish. Anguish. So this whole language here, if you go, if you remember when we read Jonah together, this whole psalm sounds exactly like Jonah in the belly of the sea monster, whatever it was, great white shark, the whale, um, you know, whatever it was. He's praying, and all of it sounds exactly like this. And Jonah was at the point of death, and he cries out to God. It's very similar here with the psalmist. Something is going on here, right? You can tell he's suffering. Death is coming for him. What's probably going on is the sickness, because all the psalmists, all the psalms that are like, um, you know, they're chasing me and whatever, they always talk about the enemies. But this one doesn't really mention, oh, my enemies are after me quite as, you know, not the same. So probably he's sick. Um, and so here he is, he's, he's laying down, he's dying, he's on the, his deathbed, and he's still being thankful. Um, Thanksgiving has nothing to do, being a thankful person has nothing to do with how easy life is. Right? If you think of Thanksgiving as every time something good happens, I'm going to thank God for it. And when he doesn't give me those good things, I'm not going to be thankful. Then you don't really understand the relationship with God. That's not how it is. Last week in the sermon, I talked about one of my favorite books ever, The Hiding Place. It's the story of Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy, who were arrested by the Nazis for hiding um, a bunch of Jewish folks um, in a secret compartment that they had built in their house. And they end up in a concentration camp. And at the end of the story, Betsy dies in the concentration camp. And Corey Tenboom gets out and she writes the book. Well, there's a section of the book where they're in the dorms, and the dorm room kind of sleeping area of the concentration camp is just absolutely riddled with fleas. And they're biting and they're just tearing them apart. And everybody hates these fleas. And there's some, I think it's like they're, they're a group together. And at some point, Betsy, who, like I said last week, I can't wait to meet her someday in eternity. She sounds like such a fantastic person. She's praying and she thanks God for the fleas. And everybody goes, what are you doing, Betsy? Thanking God for these fleas that are eating us alive. And her answer is basically, well, we don't know why the fleas are there. Maybe God has a reason for the fleas. And then she dies, and that's the end of it. And she never really finds out. Afterwards, Corey Tenboom found out those fleas kept the guards out of the dorm rooms. The guards didn't want to go get all the fleas, and they knew they were there. And so, because the guards stayed away, they were able to hold Bible studies with the stolen Bible that they had had. And so, even in the fleas biting these people, Betsy Tenboom had this like phenomenal attitude where she didn't even know what was the purpose and a lot of times we never actually get to find out what's God's big plan for something but even in the suffering she's such an amazing woman that she's thanking God for the fleas that's kind of uh, that's a great example right that this psalmist would totally agree with we thank God in the good and in the bad um, let's keep going verse four then I called on the name of the Lord O Lord I pray deliver my soul gracious is the Lord and righteous God our God is merciful so God is gracious and merciful. Um, this psalmist, uh, talking about grace and mercy, he knows that what he deserves is death and judgment. Um, when God's going to save his life in the psalm, but basically his idea is, I didn't really deserve it. I didn't deserve for God to step in and to heal me or whatever happened. Um, uh, Thanksgiving is also has to be rooted in a realistic view of our fallen and sin nature. Okay, you, until you realize really how wretched and sinful you are, you're not going to understand how amazing it is the things that God gives you. You're going to be like the Pharisees. Well, I kind of deserve it, right? I tithe my mint and my my whatever, you know, I tithe my herbs and stuff, and now God, he owes me this. This is transactional. I did my part, now God has to do his part. And in a transaction, I mean, as much as, like when you go to Starbucks or something, right? You, you pay the lady, or let's not say Starbucks, let's go to a real coffee shop. You go to uh, coffee movement. You pay the guy for the coffee. He makes you the coffee, and then what do you say? Thank you. Right? But really, this is a transaction. He wants your money. You want his coffee. Right? There's not really much to be thankful for in that situation. Now, what if you went in and you said, hey, can I have some coffee? And uh, he goes, yeah, sure. And he gives you some coffee. And you start to pay him. Oh, no, 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 this one's on the house. You know, I'm sure you've had that happen somewhere before. And you go, whoa, Thanks. Those are two very different thank yous, aren't they? One is a transaction, and one is, I don't deserve free coffee. This is great. That's the idea here with this grace and mercy. This guy knows we have to understand we don't deserve free coffee. We don't deserve anything, right? And so because we get something that we don't deserve, we didn't pay for, there's no reason for him to give it to us, then we have these thankful hearts. Verse 6, the Lord preserves the simple. When I was brought low, he saved me. That's pretty funny, right? The simple. I don't know. I think that's kind of like messed up language. He loves the simple. So good news for all of you guys, right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right. Well, good news for all of us, right? The idea is not. It's kind of a weird language, right? But simple meaning like uh, the not sophisticated, the high ups in society. This is what we've been talking about with the upside down kingdom of God. God is working in the, the on the margins of society where other, you know, other people aren't. Um, uh, don't think it's that important. God, That's where God is. Because really, that's where we all are, is somewhere on the margins of being broken and sinful. And uh, we have to understand this idea, though. Thanksgiving comes from uh, a humble and pr- uh, a humble heart, not a proud heart. And that's what I was just talking about. If you think God owes you something in that situation, you're not really thankful when you get whatever it is that he gives you. Whatever blessing or whatever situation he's working in your life, if you think he owes it to you, your heart is going to be proud and uh, arrogant, not humble and thankful. And so we have to start with this idea that, um, boy, I really don't deserve any of this. And then we're amazed when he says, he saved me. So without knowing the situation, again, probably some sort of illness or sickness or whatever, the Lord saved this psalmist. And the psalmist cried out to God, and he received salvation in his dire circumstances." And so he says, verse seven, return, O my soul, to your rest, for the Lord has dealt bountifully with you. So the next thing is, that God does for the psalmist is he gives his soul rest. A thankful heart is a restful heart. This isn't the, I have a week off, uh, you know, I have a weekend off rest. I have a day to play my PS5 or to read my book or to go to the park or, you know, whatever. Just like, oh, it's just a short rest and then I've got to get back to it kind of a thing. Like, it's, it's a deeper rest than that. It's like a deep peace that's going to last. Um, it's like, imagine you're applying for a job, and you can't find a job. And you send out applications, and I don't know, I've never had a real job, but, you know, I'm sure, you know, you got to do interviews, and then uh, I know with you guys, don't you have to do, like, little tests of, can you program this thingy or whatever? And so you do a lot of these, and they're really stressful, and, boy, you're running out of savings, and you're starting to get stressed, you know. And then finally, you get a job. And they send you the letter. I don't know how it works when you get a real job, you know. And uh, <laughs> I've been a pastor basically since I was, like, since I was 20. So um, they send you a letter and the offer or something. You sign it and send it back. I don't know how it works or you do it online or whatever. And then they say, okay, we want you to start next week. So you have a week off. Boy, you know the peace that happens when you're just about to run out of money and then all of a sudden you realize, okay, now there's light at the end of the tunnel. I have this job. I can, I can exhale. Right? That's like peace in my soul. This peace that with the, the blessings of God, this is like that times a thousand. That's the idea. It's rest for your... It's not just I have a day off. It's like there's this deep peace that's overcome you now. Like You don't have to worry because God is in control. Verse 8. Um, <clears throat> keep going. Uh, for you have delivered my soul from death, my eyes from tears, my feet from stumbling. So Thanksgiving is always rooted in eternal things. Right? So notice he doesn't just say you've delivered me from death, my body from death. He says you've delivered my soul from death. And that's a purposefully has two layers to it. Okay, the first layer is, hey, I didn't die from this illness. The second layer is, but also you've delivered my soul from death. Right? You've done this on two different levels. You have saved me when I didn't deserve it. And so Thanksgiving is always, like I said, rooted in eternal things and then works its way out from there. Um, imagine I was getting robbed and beaten, like the Good Samaritan story or something. I'm walking down Market Street. Some guys jump on top of me and they start smashing me with baseball bats, let's say. Not fun, right? And then you come along, super you, and you jump in the fight. You start beating up the guys with the baseball bats, and everybody runs away because you're such a hero. And so during the fight, you know, you get hit a couple of times and you're hurt, and, uh, but you did it to save me. After that happened, I would never look at you the same again, right? Every little thing that you did for me would be seen in a whole new light because you, you did this big giant thing for me, you saved my life from these guys beating me up with a baseball bat. Now, every ride to the airport the gratitude in that ride to the airport is magnified. It's not just, oh, you gave me a ride to the airport. The person who saved my life gave me a ride to the airport. There's like a whole, it's got some new juice to it, right? Uh, that's what the psalmist is doing with the psalm. God, you saved my life, you have saved my soul, and that changes everything, right? Everything is magnified with our thanksgiving. And so the question uh, right. Or moving on now, I guess. The question now moves from what has God done for the psalmist, which is some pretty cool stuff, right? Saved his life, saved his soul, uh, all of this great stuff, to what does he do for God? What does this psalmist do for God? Verse 9, I will walk before the Lord in the land of the living. I believed even when I spoke, I am greatly afflicted. I set in my alarm, all mankind are liars. That's everybody's favorite verse, right? Verse 11. Um, well, first he says, I will walk before the Lord, which is a very common way to say, I'm just going to do the things that God wants me to do. I'm going to live as a part of his kingdom with him at the center of my life, because he's the one who's worthy of this kind of thanksgiving and this kind of worship. People are not. And that's what he means when he says, all mankind are liars. Um Let's see, did I put this in here? No, no, no. Dennis Tucker, who was one of the commentators I read, he said, because humans are unreliable, they cannot be the source of deliverance or our ultimate source of hope. That's what the psalmist is saying here. It's not that we can't be thankful to people, but we're not thankful to people on the same level that we are to God, right? When we talk about the Father, there's this whole other level of thanksgiving because people are not worthy of that sort of worship. Verse 13, I will lift up the cup of salvation and call upon the name of the Lord. Okay, there's a lot of debate with the theologians and commentators what's going on with this cup of salvation. There's a few options. The first is there were lots of sacrifices in the Old Testament system that involved um, basically sacrificing booze. You know, like bringing a cup. It was like the original let's pour one out for Jesus kind of a thing. You know what I mean? Um, But I don't think that's what's happening. It could also be enjoy a drink as a way of thanksgiving. And that's the interpretation John told me I better teach. Just kidding. Uh, uh, <laughs> the mixologist over here, right? No, um, this is what I think it actually is saying. Because he's not saying give something to God, but it's almost like he's taking something from God. Um, James Montgomery Boyce said this. He was a pastor died a couple years ago. He said this, The only way we can repay God for uh, from whom everything comes is by taking even more from him. Spurgeon noted that this is the wisest of all possible replies, and then he quotes, This is a Spurgeon quote that Boyce quotes. The best return for one like me, so wretched and so poor, is from his gifts to draw a plea and ask him still for more. And then Boyce says this. I will lift up the cup of salvation is immediately joined and I will call on the name of the Lord because we receive God's gifts and then we go on in the same relationship forever asking and receiving from him. So one of the One of the best ways to be thankful is by enjoying the things that God is giving you and then saying, hey, I want more from God. Not like prosperity gospel, but by saying, God, you're a great God, and this is what you've given me, and I'm so thankful for that, and I'm going to enjoy it. Um, You you know, we eat Wednesday nights or whatever. Imagine if you cooked a dinner for the Wednesday night group. Um, You know, we're all having dinner, and you cooked. and Like, I made eggs. These were the best eggs you guys ever ate that one time. And you guys are all still talking about it, I know. Not in front of me, because you want me to stay humble, but I know about you guys love these eggs, right? No, so imagine you're cooking dinner and uh, you're a little worried. "Eh, I don't know if everybody's going to like this. And you bring it, uh, whatever it is. Everybody says, I want more of that. I want you to cook again, right? That's a better thank you than somebody going, hey, thanks for making dinner. Because you know, wow, they really enjoyed this thing, right? That's kind of what's happening. With this psalmist, what he's saying, and what Boyce is saying, that quote in Spurgeon there, that's the idea. When God gives you something good, don't feel guilty. Don't be. It's not spiritual to be constantly the guy who's a bummer. You know what I mean? That that's not what this is about. This is about joy and having fun and. Uh, enjoying life with church people, right? We're thankful for each other and relationships, and so we hang out um, and we spend time together. We enjoy food and wine and good company, and we enjoy the life that God has given us, and then we go back and we say, hey, God, that was dope. Give me some more, right? I love that. I love this this life in community that we do. We we should be a happy and joyful people who love hanging out together, and that's what people are going to see and go, hey, I want some of that life. I want to be thankful like those guys are thankful as they enjoy what God has given them, not being sour and saying, oh, you know, like, oh, God wants me to, you know, always be sad or something. That's not, like, Jesus was, we were just talking about that. Jesus was happy. He ate with people. He had fun, right? All right, keep going. The next thing is the psalmist fulfills his vows. He says, I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people, precious in the sight of the Lord. Um, Okay, this is a weird verse, right? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And then um, the same vow idea is in 18 and 19 the end of the psalm. I will pay my vows to the Lord in the presence of all his people. In the courts of of the house of the Lord, um, in your midst, O Jerusalem, praise the Lord. That's how the psalm ends. Anyway, so he will, uh, it says that he will pay his vows. Um, The Old Testament worship system was full of vows that you would take, Nazarite vow. There were like a bunch of them. And you would take a vow, you would fulfill the vow, here were the conditions and whatever. You know, We see this with Paul and some of the early Christians who took some vows and stuff. we don't quite do this the same in the New Covenant. We don't take vows like this. But I think we can bridge the gap and apply this to our situation by saying, I'm going to do church stuff with joy. Right? We, we have other things we do. We don't take vows quite the same, but we have other things we do, don't we? Prayer, uh, teaching, worship, communion, baptism, all that jazz. We do it with as a joyful people with glad and thankful hearts. And then um, jumping back, he says too, like um, he serves him, Uh, He serves him faithfully. Um, Verse 12, what shall I render to the Lord, uh, all his benefits to me? So the next thing he sort of asks God is first he goes, what can I even do for God? As he starts thinking about all this thankfulness bubbling up in his heart, he goes, but man, God is so great. What can I even do to serve him? It's like same in Romans, right? Paul says, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? it's silly to think that we can make God better through our thankfulness. Like, he's up there waiting for us to be thankful. You know, like, oh man, if they're not thankful, I'm incomplete as God. I need this thankful, these thankful people. Um, But with that said, God loves it when his people worship him and glorify his name, not because he's needy and insecure, but by doing that, that's the best thing for us. And So our thanking him is what's best for us. It's glorifying his name, and he knows that, and so he, he calls that thankfulness for us, from us. And then again, this verse here, verse 15, I want to show you this. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. And he says that, O oh Lord, I am your servant, I am your servant, the son of your maidservant. You've loosed my bonds. I will offer you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will call on the name of the Lord. All right, so this, this is the last little bit. We kind of jumped around, so this is the last bit we're going to read. This is a weird verse, right? Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. So the the ESV, which is the version we read here, the New International Version, the King James Version, New American Standard, all use this word precious. Um, The Christian Standard Bible, which I also like, says valuable, it's similar terminology. The idea is hard to translate. It's a little weird. It's like heavy, weighty, valuable. Um, So what what is valuable? What is heavy? What is weighty? He says the death of his loved ones. Huh? Huh? That's what God says. God loves it when his people die. Now, most commentators and theologians and people who have studied this verse for years agree that this verse really means that it's life and death of God's people that are heavy and important, and he doesn't take it lightly. It doesn't mean like he, it's not like he loves it when his people die, but he takes it seriously when his people die. It's heavy, it's weighty, it's costly. Remember the context. Oh, I didn't get into this actually earlier. Um, The context of this psalm is uh, this psalm for the people of God was part of the psalms that they would read at the Passover, right? And so when you're thinking of the story of the Passover from the Exodus, where God saved all those people um, from the judgment that was sweeping through the land of Egypt, right? And all the firstborn were dead. And he said, if you paint your doors with this lamb's blood, this judgment will pass over you and your lives will be saved. Right, So God says, look, I value your lives just like I did the people at the Passover. And that's why the New Living Translation, which is more of a paraphrase, translates it this way. The Lord cares deeply when one of his loved ones dies. Your, your, value, your life and your death is valuable to God. And so this is also true when things don't go your way. This psalmist is praising God because his life was saved. Sometimes, though, you cry out to God, And the cancer takes you anyway. And what this verse is telling us is that never happens lightly. We can never say when somebody dies, when one of God's people dies, God didn't care. That's not what the Bible says. We can never say in suffering, God doesn't care about this. The lives and death of his people are part of his sovereign plan. And that's one of the things I love about that book, The Hiding Place, and I love about uh, Betsy uh, Ten Boom, is... uh, what an amazing woman, right? How many people have come to faith reading about her life and her strength and her per, uh, her perspective on eternity? And all of that happened because of her tragic life and her tragic death. And Nothing that happened to her was because God didn't care. Nothing that happened to her was because God didn't listen. In fact, everything that happened to her was because God cared and because God was listening. And now she's with Jesus. She's been dead for a while, since the 40s. And she's hanging out, praising him, thanking him for the way that she got to suffer in this life and die so that she could be a part of his plan. And that's why I want to meet her Sunday. Um, I love that. Uh, you know, Johnny Erickson Tada has a very similar attitude, who... Broke her neck in a diving accident, and she's a paraplegic, and she's a super uh, godly woman. Francis Chan one time said she's the most godly person he's ever met, right? And I love Johnny Erickson Tata, but one of the things I love is she makes coffee dates with people in heaven. Look, we're probably never going to see each other in this life again, but we're going to get coffee when we get to eternity. Just her perspective on life and her suffering is very similar, right? Is This is happening because God cares about me and because he wants to use my life. And so that's our Thanksgiving song. Psalm. It's a little weird, isn't it? A Thanksgiving psalm about death and suffering. Um, I'm actually gonna. I'm gonna skip that part. Um, but there was one commentator who pointed out how many times, uh, three, four, five times, the idea of death and Sheol, which was like the afterlife, it all shows up in this psalm. Why is a psalm filled with references, uh, a psalm of Thanksgiving? Why is it filled with references to death? Right, it's so weird. Like, I'm going to have this kind of creepy Halloween psalm that's about Thanksgiving, right? It's all about uh, death and suffering, and God, I'm thankful to you. Okay, here's the reason why. The psalmist is happy to be alive. That's why. He starts at the very—it's so basic. He's happy that he's not dead. It's a Passover psalm. It's read during the Passover because all of those people, same thing. Hey, we're happy to be alive. We're happy to be free, Thanksgiving starts with the very basics, guys. Holy crap, I'm alive. Thanks. <laughs> right? It's it's Thanksgiving is not super complicated. And what it does is it starts with the very basic stuff and it works its way out. And then as, as you start to be thankful for other things. But starting at the very beginning, how often have you stopped and just thanked God that you were alive today? It's so basic. But just think about it. If he hadn't created the universe, you wouldn't be here. If he hadn't if he had stopped sustaining the universe the way that he does, holding everything together, you wouldn't be here. So many things had to happen from Adam to now for you to be here, right? How many chance encounters happened where some guy was walking down a road at the same time as some girl, and they caught each other's eye, and now you're here, 5,000 years later, right? You know what I mean? That had to happen how many times for you to be here? And all of that is within God's sovereign plan. If God hadn't been working, you would not be here. And <clears throat> so we start with that basic idea, right? But here's another interesting point as we think about Thanksgiving, and just the very basics. This is a an, it's a weird psalm because it's an individual psalm. There's no we us in this psalm, like a lot of the psalms. But at the same time, it's a community psalm because it was read with everybody in the week of Passover, right? And so this is, it's this personal psalm, but it occurs in this section called the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, right? This Passover section. And they would have, the, Jesus probably sung this psalm the night that he was betrayed, right? While they were sitting around. This is one of the things that they did. Um, in this culture, the lines from between individual and community were a lot more blurry than they are in our culture. They were very good at this, being an actual community. And in, in one sense, that's how the church is supposed to operate as well. We, we live in this tension of, I am saved and I'm thankful, and in this tension of, we are saved and we're thankful, right? We're connected in pain and suffering, in joy and happiness, right? When you suffer, I do. When you're joyful, so am I. That's the idea. When you're thankful, so am I. And so, just starting with the very basics of I'm alive, we're alive as a community, we're thankful for these basics. What we're supposed to do then is then work our way out from there and try to think of the other things that we have to be thankful. Try to be like Betsy Tenbu. I used this illustration in the sermon last year, but you probably don't remember, so I'll just do it again. Uh, you guys know I love Sherlock Holmes, and I, I don't know if you do, but I, talk about, I, don't know, I like Sherlock Holmes. It's super interesting. And there's a section in um, the Sherlock Holmes, uh, the first book, where he's talking to Watson. And basically what he says is, we see the same things, but I'm the only one watching. Right, the reason you're not putting all this stuff together is because you're not really paying attention the way that I'm paying attention in a more like, um, in a more intentional way, right? And I mean, obviously, he was supposed to be a genius and all this stuff too, but that's a way Thanksgiving works. A lot of times, we're just walking around like Dr. Watson when what the Bible calls us to do is walk around like Sherlock Holmes. Look at look for things to be thankful for. Start with, hey, I'm alive today, and work your way out from there. So, what we're going to do now is a little bit different. We're not going to do the communion. I'm, I'm sorry, we're doing communion. We're not doing the confession part today of the service. We're going to replace that with a section where we're going to talk about Thanksgiving. And so there are some... Does anybody want to hand those out for me? I put them on the back table there. If okay, I get a volunteer? There's a, a little three-by-five cards, little index cards. Could everybody take like one or two of those and a pen? There's pens back there too. And this is what we're going to do. I'm going to play some music on that, their uh, computer machine. And um, we're going to take just a few minutes, and we're going to write this out. So this is this is the sentence I want you to fill out a couple of different times. I wrote down 11 of them <laughs> as I was prepping this sermon. I'll share one or two with you. But look, this is what I want you to do. Do you see this? I have seen God working, blank, and that makes me thankful because...